Our reading this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 31. This may be found on page 889 of the Church Bibles and 1,429 of the large print Bibles. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of silver, gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, <coughs> appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him.
Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the king kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblet, goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in your hand, his hand, your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Claire. Shall we pray as we open this passage? Lord, thank you for your word, your living word, and we pray now that you will open our minds and our hearts to receive what you will teach us today from it. In Jesus' name, amen. I may be wrong, but I can't think of any other chapter in the Bible that has given us two phrases into the English language. The writing is on the wall, and you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. How often do you hear that? Uh, maybe, there are, maybe there is another chapter, but I'm not sure. <clears throat> I've enjoyed listening over the last few weeks to, to the sermons. I haven't been here, but I've heard most of them. I'm just conscious that as we've gone through Daniel, it's been quite spread out. Uh, it seems a long time since Peter's opened up chapter one. Uh, so today is a little bit of a recap of Daniel, and hopefully it will kind of set the context and the background uh, to this well-known story of Belshazzar's feast. The great theme of Daniel, perhaps the main theme, I'm not sure, but perhaps, is the question as to how the people of God live as a minority people within a society which is hostile to the practice of their faith and yet maintain their identity as the people of God. That's the challenge for Daniel and that's the challenge for us. How can they maintain their Jewishness in, in an alien society? 
One writer helpfully expresses this in terms of accommodation and resistance, and I'm going to borrow those two words today because I found them extremely helpful when he's writing about life in exile, when to accommodate into the ways of empire and when to resist, which of course makes all this incredibly contemporary. As our society becomes increasingly secularized, we face issues and challenges today that didn't exist a generation ago, and if they did, they were in a very different form. Issues around uh, human sexuality, even gender identity, ethical decisions in the workplace, maybe even Sunday morning children's sport during church time. These are all issues in our society which are real, which we face, and some may see as more important than others, but they're all issues of accommodation and resistance, and we could go on. And these issues seem to multiply and get ever uh, so complex. It's been said that our society was shaped by Christianity in the same way as our landscape was shaped by melting ice, but the ice has gone and certainly the influence of Christianity is waning. And what are we left with? Well, I'm working in education and we're left with British values. We're left with in, in, inclusion, tolerance, diversity, all the buzzwords. And yet without fixed reference points, the meaning of these words is obscure. What do we really mean? There's no agreed no real agreed definition. So the questions raised in Daniel couldn't be more relevant and, and important. How do we maintain our distinctiveness, our baptismal identity, our identity as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, in a society which is increasingly hostile to the claims of Christianity and to the practice of faith? a society that would want to talk us out of our faith. This, of course, is a common theme in Scripture. You remember that uh, Joseph faced this when he was appointed as prime minister of Egypt in the Egyptian empire. The same struggles, accommodation and resistance. And, of course, the early Christians had to grapple with it in life in the Roman Empire. So what we face is nothing new. But what is new is that each new generation has to go through the thought process, the negotiation of how do I work this out in my context in this generation. And we need each other to engage in that process. And as we've already discovered going through Daniel, he has much, this book has much to instruct and inspire us and teach us. You recall that back in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends were selected for a three-year civil service training program. And they were to be trained in the ways of the Babylonian Empire and to be trained for positions in that empire. So how are these young Jewish graduates going to accommodate their life of faith within that empire? 
and how do we accommodate our faith as Christians in Guildford in the early part of the 21st century. It seems to me on reading and rereading this book of Daniel that one, there is one quite key verse early on that Peter referred to when he covered chapter 1. And it's the statement that Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Uh, this word defile, you may uh, realize, comes is a very familiar word in the book of Leviticus. I'm not sure what you do in a, one of these read the Bible in a year programs when you come to Leviticus. Do you skip it completely? Do you skim read it or do you read it? Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. Um, but all I can say is that Daniel was, knew the book of Leviticus. He knew, he, understand, he understood uh, what it meant, the, understand, the word defile meant. And he understood that to be holy, which is essentially what the book of Leviticus is about, what does holy living look like and the practical outworking of it, that one aspect of it, one foundational aspect of it is the absence of defilement, the sort of practices that defiled the nations around, you must have nothing to do with, and that's why the word keeps coming up 17 times, as does the word holy many more times. So what young Jewish men were to learn from the book, from the story of Daniel, was that in order to maintain their identity as Jews, as the people of God, the foundation, the, the absolute basics of it were, was a resolve to live a holy life. So without that resolve, what would any discussions about this identity mean? That's the foundation. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He resolved to live a life of holiness to God a life set apart for God. So let's continue with this idea of accommodation and resistance. How did Daniel accommodate, Daniel and his friends, accommodate their Jewish faith, their Jewish identity in Babylonian life? You may recall that Jeremiah preaching to the same people in exile said this, to, this was his instruction to them. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. By the way, let me just pause and note this. They didn't go into exile because the king of Babylon overcame Israel and took them into captivity. They went into captivity because God allowed that to happen. He sent them into exile. But back to the, the thrust of what I'm trying to say. That's, his instruction was seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. 
in which you live. So how does this work out? How does this work out in a society which is inhospitable to the practice of that very faith? Our resolve on the one hand to be holy, to be set apart for God, and at the same time find ways to accommodate my faith in the city in a way which will be of benefit to the city. There's an inevitable tension there. And that's clearly something that Daniel had to work out, and it's something that we have to work out. So, for example, they were given new names, but they were names which were related, as Peter told us, to the gods of Babylon, to the Babylonian gods. They did not give up their Jewish names, but they had to learn to live with a dual identity. They had a Babylonian name, and they maintained their Jewish name. Even of the language of the book, in some way, seems to reflect that same tension. It's curious that the chapter 1 up to uh, verse 4 in chapter 2 is written in Hebrew. And from chapter 2, verse 4, to, verse, uh, to chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Hebrew being, of course, their own language, the language of their worship, the language of their faith, and Aramaic being the international language of trade. We don't know why it was written like that, but it's almost as if that that's even the way the book is written reflects the tension between accommodating of life in Babylon and resisting the ways of empire. So, young Jewish men, if you want to retain your Jewishness, you will speak in Hebrew, you will keep your Jewish name, but at the same time, you need to know when to speak with your Babylonian name, and you need to know when to speak Aramaic. You need to work that out. Accommodation and resistance. And there are some other interesting examples of accommodation. We can uh, just imagine the discussions that took place between Daniel and his friends when he entered into the negotiation with Nebuchadnezzar's chief official about the supply of kosher food. And then we heard in today's reading that Daniel ended up in charge, this is curious, in charge of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Does that strike you as an odd job title for a devout Jew? I wonder what key performance indicators you would set. <laughs> Underpinning all this is that even in the, after the three years of training in the ways of empire, Daniel had not lost his resolve. He resolved to be holy. He continued that internal thought process, that discussion with his friends, that process that involved how to accommodate with life in empire, with resistance to the ways of empire. That discussion, he never lost the resolve to do that. He resolved that he would seek the good of the city and at the same time maintain the ways of Torah, the way of freedom, the way of hope, 
and resolved not to be defined by the empire. And the way he would do it would be each day resolving to live a life of holiness to God. To be Daniel when necessary, but to be Belteshazzar, to speak Aramaic when it was prudent to do so, to manage the magicians and the astrologers and the diviners. So they find ways to practice a life of faith in a hostile society. So what about resistance? When was it necessary to resist? When did Daniel's resolve to be holy mean that he had to say no? When did he take a stand, regardless of the consequences? And when do we, if we resolve to be holy and set apart to God, say, no, I cannot do this? You remember when Daniel's three friends were ordered to bow and worship the golden idol, what they said. The story is familiar. We've considered it already. Addressing the king directly, this is what they said, your majesty, King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not serve your gods. Neither we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. We will not do it. No compromise. And then we reach today's passage in chapter 5. Daniel, by the way, is now 85 years old. He still hasn't lost his resolve. He's 85. He's enjoying a degree of job security in Babylon. He has some sort of income. He's secure. He's enjoying a pretty peaceful life. But he stands before the king and said, you have set yourself up against the God of heaven. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Eighty-five years old, but still full of resolve, still knowing when to resist, still seeking to live a holy life. Truth speaking to power. So what about us? What are the gods that we are asked to bow down to? I suppose what marks our society is the relentless pursuit of wealth. The gods of production and consumption the relentless pressure that we face in workplaces to produce more, sell more, work more, spend more, consume more. Does that define our life? I think that's the pressure that we live under. 
And it takes resolve, it takes the resolve of Daniel to maintain our hope, our freedom, our identity as the people of God. And yet at the same time be good citizens, good employees, run good businesses. Yet not be defined by the gods of production and of consumption. Jesus put it very succinctly. You cannot serve God and wealth. You couldn't put it much more simply than that. You cannot serve both. So the question is, where did Daniel's reserve, sorry, his resolve come from? And even in the face of death, and that was the likely consequence in his mind of what he said to King in the passage today. You see, there were Israelites who decided just to give up their identity. Well, they didn't consciously decide to give it up, but they, they, they decided that actually life would be better if you just became Babylonian and accepted the ways of empire. You're certainly financially better off, less challenge, no life-threatening statements. Let's just accept it wholeheartedly. There were many that did that. They lost their resolve and became just fully integrated into Babylonian life, an easier option. So why should we maintain this resolve? Why did Daniel maintain it, and why should we? Why did these young men, these graduates, having gone through all that training, ready for positions of authority, put their life on the line? Why did an 85-year-old Daniel, with security, risk losing all he had and his own life to speak the truth of God to King Belshazzar? Why bother? One of the features of biblical faith is that God always places His demands on His people to be holy as a response to His saving acts. He always demands holiness in view of what He has done for us. So, for example, when in, in Exodus 19, when uh, God is, is about to give the law to Moses, you remember Moses went up onto the mountain, God is, is about to give him the law. This is, what, this is what God said to Moses. He said, this is what you're to go back and tell my people. You saw what I did in Egypt. You, my people, saw that. I delivered you miraculously out of slavery. I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. I delivered you miraculously from slavery. I carried you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, here is the law. Here is the means whereby you will continue to enjoy the freedom that I have brought you and to maintain the relationship with me, your God, that I have brought you into. Do this in response 
to what I've done for you. Paul picks this up and uses it time and time again. And if you're in any doubt, read Romans chapter 6 to 8. To eight. And you remember just as an example of that, you remember there's a great uh, sort of doxology at the end of chapter 11 in Romans. And then immediately following that, this is what Paul says. Therefore, in view of all that, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of all that I've just told you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, holy, and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, and in some translations, reasonable response to that. Holiness, God's command to be holy, is always a response to what a loving God has done for us. And it's motivated by personal experience in, of God's love, His forgiveness, and His grace. Now, Daniel resolved to be holy, to, set, to be set apart for God, not a God. The one that Daniel, the God that Daniel worshipped and served was the living creator of history, the God of history. And the late chapters, this is really important, I think, the late chapters of Isaiah from chapter 40 through 55 are set in this same period of exile. And this is what God says in those chapters to King Cyrus. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. This is addressing a pagan king. I bestow it on you, a title of honor. Though you, Cyrus, do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I think in our day, this is another message that we need to keep very, very firmly in our mind. Daniel's God, our God, is the living God of history. Daniel and his friends did not emerge from their Babylonian training saying, isn't this a fascinating culture with all these wonderful idols? I think, chaps, we need to become more inclusive, more accommodating. These idols are beautiful. These are wonderful representations of uh, this extraordinary culture. I think we need to be more diverse. That's not what he said. Paul, equally clear on the subject, wrote to the church at Thessalonica, celebrating the fact that these people had turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. The Roman inscriptions that have been unearthed of the early church period read such things such as Emperor Caesar, God and Lord. Or another one reads 
Nero, Lord of the whole world. The central confession of the early church was Jesus Christ is Lord. And it, could, it was dynamite because of this, Jesus was Lord, Caesar wasn't. Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Let me just finish with this. I am sure that on matters of accommodation, Daniel and his friends had disagreements. I, I, I'm confident of that. There must have been aspects of accommodating to life in Babylon that were controversial. And so do we. I touched on some of those things earlier. We will always disagree. People with equal resolve to be holy will disagree on many matters of accommodation. If they lose their resolve, the discussion is irrelevant. But people who resolve to be holy will disagree on matters of accommodation. But let us resolve, as Hebrew encourages and instructs us, to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. On this, we must remain 100% united. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And let us consider how we can help each other. To make those sort of statements in our postmodern world provokes hostility, but we must be absolutely united. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Jesus Christ is Lord. And let's unsw unswervingly keep to the hope that we profess. And like Daniel, maintain our resolve. Even if you're 85 years old today, maintain your resolve. And we do so. We do so. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. Amen.